welcome to Storytime with Avant-Garde Books. I'm Cherie Hardy, and I hope that you and your family are well. Thank you for listening. Today, I'm going to be reading an excerpt from a novel called Untwine by Edwige Dottigat. This excerpt was taken from Read 180 Real Book, and it was published by Hofton, Mifflin, and Harcourt. Well, let's get started. If you have this excerpt, you can read along with me. But if you don't, get in a very comfortable place and just get relaxed and listen to Untwine. In the novel Untwine, Haitian-American author Edwige Donteca explores the relationship between identical twins, Isabel and Giselle Boyer. The sisters bond seem unbreakable until a tragic event tears them apart. As their father is driving the family to Isabel's flute concert, another car hits theirs. Later, Giselle awakens at the hospital and discovers that her twin did not survive the accident. In this excerpt, which takes place weeks after the tragedy, Giselle is back home. Here, she begins a long process to recover from her loss by remembering the special moments she shared with her sister. Eventually, Giselle realizes she faces a bigger challenge. She must discover her identity as an individual. While Giselle remembers Isabel as part of her past, she must learn to face the future as a dosa, the Haitian Creole word for an untwinned sibling. When we were little, we used to share room where we played indoor hopscotch and dared each other to see who could cannonball closet to the ceiling from our twin beds. We shared a flowered rug we called magic carpet and a seashell chandelier that now hangs from Isabel's ceiling. Her headboard is also a bookcase where she mostly kept her acoustic speakers and magazines, some of which she'd had for years. Across from her bed is a day bed that used to be her crib when she was a baby. Mine is in storage somewhere. On the day bed are two mason jars full of dozens of buttons in different shapes, colors, and sizes. Some of the buttons are still in the tiny plastic bags in which they came attached to the insides of brand new clothes. One of those two jars had once been mine. I stopped collecting replacement or understudy buttons, as she called them, but she hadn't. Everything else in her room, every wall, sheet, or curtain is either red, white, or black, her three favorite colors. She used her walls mostly as a bulletin board for things she didn't want to forget. There's a large calendar above the daybed with the day of the concert the day of the car crash, circled in red. Next to the calendar are several pages of sheet music, some for the school orchestra, some for the church choir, and some that she was learning on her own. Tagged to her reddest accent wall is a blown up eight by 10 inch selfie of her and Ron Johnson on the beach with the two pilot whales in the background. Her cheek is pressed against Ron Johnson's cheek and all of their teeth are showing. She took that picture when they learned that the whales were going to be okay. 
As I walk to her bed, I leave wet footprints on the cherry wood floor, which would have driven her crazy. I look through her desk and skim through a few loose pages of her handwritten stories and poems, many of them to be put to music one day, printed in bold letters at the top. Some of the pages have one or two words, which are written backwards as though to be read in a mirror. Words like evolve, trey, nor, is nor Ron, Isabel, and I hadn't done any mirror writing since we were kids, leaving some of these same words along with our names as messages to each other on every mirror in the house. I go through her closet and try on some of her clothes, her red skinny jeans, like the ones with holes in the knees, and two of her favorite t-shirts with faces of Scott Joplin, Ragtime King, and Denise Graves, opera goddess, printed on them. I put her crown of plastic red cardinal flowers on my head. We should have put it on her head, I think, in her coffin. I try on the winter boots, the furry-looking brown ones she liked to wear to New York, and I even find some of the things in her closet, a hooded jumpsuit, a striped jersey dress, and a pair of sand-colored espadilles. This is a lot more than I should be doing. My neck is starting to feel wobbly, achy, not strong enough to hold my pulsating head. I stumble over to Isabel's bed and climb under her red chenille throw and raise it over my head. Slipping under her covers reminds me of when we were little girls and I used to jump into her bed. I would wake up from a nightmare and there she would be waking up from the same nightmare just in time to rock me back to sleep. Now, I will always be alone with my nightmares. The hallway door, the one with the stay out sign, cracks open, and I hear footsteps. Someone is walking towards Izzy's bed. I hear a purr from up high, not on the floor. Dessaline is in somebody's arms. When I pull the throw off my head, I see Mom and Dad there. Dad is leaning on his crutches in the doorway. Half his body is broken. He's wearing a tank top and pajama shorts. Mom is standing next to the bed in one of those one of her long nightgowns. She's holding Dessaline. I thought I heard someone in here, Dad says from the doorway. Didn't mean to scare you guys, I say. I think we're scared we scared each other, Mom says. It's been strange having both rooms empty while you were still in the hospital, Dad says. His words fall so heavy on all of us that if we were a ship at sea, they'd immediately sink us to the bottom. My parents seem to realize that there are no safe places left in the super booby-trapped minefield all around us. So they stand there quietly, both of them staring at me until Dessaline's purring momentarily snaps all of us out of it. Thought you'd like some company, Mom says. She leans over and puts Dessalines in my arms. Dessalines rubs his whispers against my cheeks. He starts kneading my chest with his paws, then slips away and curls up at the foot of the bed. 
Dad wobbles over on his crutches and Mom helps him slide onto one side of the bed. He groans as if in agony while sitting on Isabel's super hard mattress. Mom turns off the light and climbs in on the other side of me. They are guarding me like rails, as if to keep me from falling. The bed creaks under all our weight, and I'm afraid that the box frame might snap and come crashing down, but it doesn't. Desalines dashes off. I don't think that cat likes any of us, Dad says. I think he's just like Izzy, Mom says. I'm tempted to say, remember when? And then tell me some story about Izzy and Desalines. There are so many. I start drawing again after Dr. Ado tells me I can. Usually I like to draw people alone in a wide landscape, something I find quick and easy to do. One of my favorite things to draw is a person walking along on the beach in the middle of the day when the sun is at its highest point in the sky. I usually spend more time drawing the shadow than the person because shadows are a lot like a lot more interesting to me. I like the way you can stretch or shrink them based on the light source. My ninth grade art teacher, Mrs. Walker, used to say that to be good at drawing, you need to simplify. You have to break things down into small parts, into lines, dashes, and dots. Bodies become shapes, faces become circles, chests become squares, legs become cylinders and cones. My favorite part of drawing has always been shading, filling in a pencil outline by adding darker and darker layers for more depth. I also love drawing broken things. Ruins, Mrs. Walker said, are a lot easier to draw than perfect things. And here I am surrounded by ruins. I began sketching our backyard, starting with the mango and avocado trees, then adding the new red hibiscus bushes, jasmines, and quacuses that Grandma Regine had planted. Then I draw the kidney-shaped pool and the deck where Grandma Regine and Grandpa Marcus are lounging next to each other, their faces covered with wide-brimmed, straw-colored fun hats. Grandpa Marcus is wearing green swim shorts and Grandma Regine's a matching monokini. They're quietly taking in the sun while also watching my parents, who are sitting across from them on the other side of the pool, fully dressed in the shade. Mom's head is almost completely healed, the scar on her forehead getting less and less visible every day. Dad is still going around on his crutches, but is wearing a lighter sling on his arm and a medical boot on his leg. He will be starting physical therapy soon. Before, when I would try to sketch a moment like this, a still and uncomfortable moment, if Isabel was there, she'd turn around and look at me now and then, waving as if to a camera to make sure I could see her. So I sketch Isabel in. I sketch her right in the middle of my ruins. Later, I will shade her in. I'll draw her doing a breaststroke in the pool, and I will draw myself sitting on the edge of the pool watching her. I will fill all of us in watching Isabel swimming. I'll even add Desalines lurking in a corner somewhere. While trying to frame and sketch all of this, I keep wishing there was some way to make it come even more alive and feel more real. So I drop the sketch pad, and when no one is looking, I slip into the pool. And while doing a breaststroke, 
I don't feel dizzy. I don't sink under. I don't drown. Mom and Dad and Grandpa Marcus and Grandma Regine get up and move to the edge of the pool. At first, they look frightened. Then, on their faces, I see something that looks a little bit like wonder. Like, wow, she's doing this. She is really here, even though her sister is not. One day, I'll be able to sketch myself alone. One day, I will be able to draw myself as no longer a twin, as the dosa, the untwinned one, the untwined one, but not just yet. All right, boys and girls, that is the end of that excerpt of Untwined, and that was written by Haitian American writer. Yes, Haitian American writer Edwige Dontika. I hope you um, learned something from that short story, boys and girls. Take care.